Hello, and welcome to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I am your host, Mr. Miller. This podcast will cover a number of topics that happened on this date in history. Please visit the podcast webpage at thishappentoday.buzzsprout.com. There you can download the notes page, which will help you organize the information, as well as develop your own ideas on how these events change the world around us. If you're interested in hearing more, please consider subscribing so you will not miss out on what happens tomorrow in history. Today is June 24th. In 1901, the first major exhibition of Pablo Picasso's artwork opened at a gallery on Paris Rue Lafitte, a street known for its prestigious art galleries. The precocious 19-year-old Spaniard was at the time a relative unknown outside Barcelona. But he had already produced hundreds of paintings. The 75 works displayed at Picasso's first Paris exhibition offered moody, representational paintings by a young artist with obvious talent. Picasso, widely acknowledged as a dominant figure in the 20th century art, was born in 1881 in Malga, Spain. His father was a professor of drawing and bred Picasso for a career in academic art. He had his first exhibit at age 13 and later quit art school so he could experiment full-time with modern art styles. He went to Paris for the first time in 1900, and in 1901 he returned with 100 of his paintings. His goal was to win an exhibition. He was introduced to Ambroise Vollard, a dealer who had sponsored Paul Cezanne, and Vollard immediately agreed to show at his gallery after seeing the paintings. From street scenes to landscapes, prostitutes to society ladies, Picasso's subjects were diverse. The young artist received a favorable review from the few Paris art critics who saw the show. He stayed in Paris for the rest of the year and later returned to Paris to settle permanently. The work of Picasso, which comprises more than 50,000 paintings, drawings, engravings, sculptures, and ceramics produced over 80 years, is described in a series of overlapping periods. His first notable period, the Blue Period, begins shortly after his Paris exhibit. In works such as The Old Guitarist in 1903, Picasso painted in blue tones to evoke that melancholy world of the poor. The Blue Period is followed by the Rose Period, in which he often depicted circus scenes, and then by Picasso's early work in sculpture. In 1907, Picasso painted the groundbreaking work De La Demoiselle de Vion, which is fragmented and distorted representation of the human form broke from previous European art. This piece demonstrated the influence on Picasso of both African mask art and Paul Cezanne and is seen as a forerunner in the Cubist movement founded by Picasso and the French painter Georges Braque in 1909. In Cubism, which is divided into two phases, analytical and synthetic, Picasso and Braque established the modern principle that artwork need not represent reality to have artistic value. Major cubic works by Picasso included his costumes and sets for Serge Dalloway's Ballet's Ruses in 1917 and The Three Musicians in 1921. Picasso and Braque's cubist experiments also resulted in the invention of several new artistic techniques, including collage. After Cubism, Picasso explored classical and Mediterranean themes and images of violence and anguish increasingly appeared in his work. In 1937, this trend culminated in the masterpiece Guernica, a monumental work that evoked horror and suffering endured by the vast town of Guernica when it was destroyed by German warplanes during the Spanish Civil War. Picasso remained in Paris during the Nazi occupation but was fervently opposed to fascism. After the war, he joined the French Communist Party. 
His work after World War II is less studied than his earlier creations, but he continued to work feverishly and enjoyed commercial and critical success. He produced fantastical works, experimented with ceramics, and painted variations of the works of other masters in the history of art. Known for his intense gaze and domineering personality, he had a series of intense and overlapping love affairs in his lifetime. He continued to produce art with undiminished force until his death in 1973 at the age of 91. In 1957, a major obscenity decision in Roth versus the United States provided the basis for an important test that the Supreme Court used to determine whether material was obscene or constitutionally protected. The court had a long time held that there were a few types of expression that merited no First Amendment protection. In this category, the court placed obscenity, libel, and fighting words. The problem for the court and the legislatures that might try to prohibit these forms of expression was the need to define what was obscene or libelous. Roth was the decision that started the court on the path to defining what constituted obscene material. Samuel Roth had been indicted for violation of a federal obscenity statute. Roth was charged with sending obscene materials through the mail, and the jury found him guilty. Prior to this case, the Supreme Court had been using a precedent from a British case, Regina v. Hicklin, 1868, under the Hicklin test. If any part of the material was considered obscene, then the publication as a whole was considered obscene. There was no provision for the potential social or artistic value of the material. That standard was very restrictive and left a wide range of materials unprotected. Justice William J. Brennan Jr. fashioned the test that ultimately would become known as the Roth or Memoirs test based on the subsequent case that built on Memoirs vs. Massachusetts in 1966. The target was now the average person applying contemporary community standards. Eventually, the community standards became national rather than local. An important component of the new test was that the material taken as a whole must be considered obscene. In subsequent decisions, Jacobelli v. Ohio in 1964 in Memoirs, the court refined the test by adding two that, to be considered obscene, the material must be utterly without redeeming social value. Although the decision would pave the way for broader protection of free expression, the opinion met with considerable resistance. Certainly, those who had thought it was too permissive a standard objected, but there was also opposition like others, like Justice William O. Douglas, who ruled that Brennan's attempt to try to delineate a distinction between obscene and protected material would boomerang. Douglas's prophecy would turn out to be correct. Douglas, much more of an absolutist on First Amendment issues, felt anything should be protected. Brennan would migrate closer to that stance as it became clear that his initial position was untenable. In his dissent in Paris Adult Theater 1 vs. Slayton in 1973, Brennan changed his position, believing that obscenity laws as applied to consenting adults were simply too vague to satisfy First Amendment concerns. The impact of Roth Memoir's test was pronounced or has produced was pronounced on a number of levels. First, it became very difficult to get a conviction for obscenity. Second, the Supreme Court was forced to micromanage the issue and had cartons of movies, books, and magazines to review. Finally, the court became increasingly fractured over the issue to the point where there was seldom a majority opinion. In most instances, justices would engage in dissenting and concurring opinions would muddy the already confusing issue. The court had to add variety of exceptions to the test to protect children and to punish those who exploited of such material those only pandering to the basest interests. 
Ultimately, the court would effectively overturn Roth Memoir's test in Miller v. California in 1973 by removing the utterly without redeeming social value prong and changing the community standards to the local level. This article was originally written in 2009. Richard L. Passell Jr. is a professor and department head in political science at the University of Tennessee. Passell's primary re research focus is the Supreme Court. His research includes concerns with policy evolution, particularly regarding the First Amendment and the role of policy entrepreneurs in the Judiciary Supreme Court agenda building and decision-making interbranch relations. And finally, the organizer of a canceled Isle of Man music festival said people don't know what had slipped through their fingers. Less than 2,000 tickets were sold for July's festival, just a quarter of the 8,000 organizers had hoped to sell. Organizer Chris Hayes said, unless the Manx public support new music events, they will simply not happen. He added, it could have been a great festival for the Isle of Man. Sadly, now this cannot be realized. Primal Scream, Paloma Faith, and Johnny Marr were all due to perform. We had some great acts confirmed for our first year, and our plan was to develop the following year, Mr. Hayes said. In 2011, organizers of the island's Bay Festival were also forced to cancel due to poor ticket sales. At the time, organizers said, although we have explored every avenue to keep the festival alive, we cannot see a sustainable way to make it commercially viable due to poor ticket sales. The organizers also criticized the Manx government, claiming that it had not supported the event. Mr. Hayes added, you can run a ferry company without any passengers. It's the same principle. I know money is tight, but if people don't support events, they simply will not happen on the island. We had huge plans. It's a shame that the Isle of Man will develop a bad reputation with artists for canceling these events. Last year, the organizers of the Manifest Music Festival held at Glenlock announced that it would not return in 2013. The event held in first in 2009 attracted thousands of revelers last year, but an event spokesman confirmed they are having a year off. The island's only other outdoor music festival, the Garden Party, will also not happen this year. The opening night of last year's festival was canceled after high winds made it unsafe to continue. Mr. Hayes said that anybody who bought a ticket for the festival through PayPal in the last 60 days can get their money back immediately. Those who bought tickets locally will have their money returned in due course. Mr. Hayes added, the deadline for paying our artists has gone, and we had to make the decision to cancel. The risk in pursuing the event would put businesses on and off the island in jeopardy. You have been listening to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I thank you for listening, and I hope that you have enjoyed learning about historical events from the past. Thank you to the following websites for their information regarding today's topics thepeoplehistory.com, Pablo Picasso at BeechamJournal.com, the obscenity ruling at mtsu.edu, and the Isle of Man Music Festival canceled at bbc.com. The music used as the background track for this podcast is Americana, created by Kevin McLeod on Incompetech.com. If you enjoyed this information and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing, as this will keep the historical events in your feed in the morning for each day. I hope you have a great day.